I'm about to bring you another curated episode from 2018. But before I do, why don't you head on over to comingupnext.com.au, select your platform and hit subscribe. And that way in 2019, the show is going to come to you each and every week streamlined for your convenience. Friends, thank you for sharing your 2019 day one with coming up next or whichever day you happen to be listening to this. Continuing on in the uh, the festive tradition that started a couple of years ago, this is a curated edition of coming up next. Uh, some of the best from the year just gone, 2018, and uh, this year we're rewinding back to kind of uh, middle of the year as. Uh, Acting coach extraordinaire Ivana Chubbuck uh, invited me into her home in Los Angeles to speak about her life, to speak about her career, to speak about what it takes to uh, coach some of the world's biggest actors, some of the biggest actors of all time, to, uh, to Oscar success. And we're going to get to that in just a second, but uh, I was curious to know if you'd made any, uh, any New Year's resolutions this year, maybe... Maybe to subscribe to more podcasts instead of just streaming them manually each week. I mean, it's a much more efficient way of consuming podcasts. And for this particular podcast, you can do that at comingupnext.com.au. You can find links to all of the various uh, platforms, whether you listen on, uh, on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbean, even Spotify, especially Spotify. Well, not especially, but uh, they're all there. The entire back catalogue of, uh, of podcast rambles is also available there, um, including this week's episode, which I'm going to play for you right now. So crack open uh, some kind of electrolyte-based beverage, nurse that hangover, and enjoy my conversation from earlier in 2018 with Ivana Chubbuck. How long have you been living in um, in Los Angeles for? Okay, so I've been living here since hmm, 1971, I believe, something like that. Right. Mm-hmm. What area did you grow up in? In uh, Michigan, Detroit. In Detroit, okay. Mm-hmm. Murder uh, capital. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I could imagine. I survived. Right. <laughs> you, you didn't get murdered. I didn't get murdered, no. Yeah. <laughs> I'm here to tell the tale. <laughs> yeah. I could imagine that there would be quite a culture shock. I mean, I haven't actually been to Detroit, it's, it's, but... It's very middle class. It's very provincial. Yeah. And so it's... Uh, yeah, it was a culture shock as a day is long. And I came out here and I with some friends that we were all going to move out here together. And within a couple of days, they hated it, decided to move to San Francisco. Right. But we all bought the car together. So basically, I didn't have any place to stay. But I was bound and determined to be an actor, to be living in Los Angeles, and I was and I was not going to fail. I mean, I was. I, it, so many bad things happened. I got ripped off. My clothes, my money, um, all kinds of like men were trying to do what they do, and they're awful people to a young girl who's twenty one yeah. years old, and not even twenty. I was twenty years old, and um, and so. But I. But it was bound and determined. I was never going back. I was going to succeed in in Los Angeles. I was going to be an actress, and I was going to, and also a writer because I, I, I made a lot of money writing. I used to work at Universal Studios um, as a writer for Cheech and Chong, wow. and uh, and I was part of the team that wrote their movies and stuff. So. Um, and I also wrote for, uh, I did script doctoring for a lot of uh, movies. I also have written for a lot TV Guide, the comedy pieces for TV Guide, and for lots and lots of magazines. I did, you know, writing, including um, uh, short stories for literary magazines. So I was bringing in money to support my acting habit, but that's like the long version of the story. When I first came out here, there was so much damage that was done by so many things, people trying to hurt me, and I was not going to let that happen. I was going to survive, God damn it. Yeah, and now here we sit in your the room where you coach some of the biggest names 
in Hollywood and in the history of entertainment and show business. Yes. And it must be really uh, profound to kind of, I mean, you're showing me all of these amazing things that you have in this room that have kind of been gifted to you over the years from some of these amazing people. It must be pretty amazing to be able to reflect and to just kind of sit in that, uh, or do you? Well, I, I, I just, I, I feel that because I'm a victim of abuse. Um, I grew up with a, a mother who was mentally ill and a hoarder. You know that show Hoarders? Mm. Well, that's that, that's my life. I grew up right. with like rats and cockroaches and stuff, like wow. waking up with roaches all over me and that kind of stuff. And also she was very physically and emotionally uh, and verbally abusive, but was unaware because she, she would turn and all of a sudden violence would happen and you wouldn't know when that was, what how how a child's going to figure out how that's going to be triggered. Even I still to this day don't know what yeah. triggered her. But in any case, I was, um, it was always about surviving. It was always about surviving because my father, who was a great man and an amazing brain and, he, he didn't want to be there. He stayed there the whole time, but he was, he'd leave for early in the morning. He was a lawyer, and he'd come back late at night, so he was never there to protect us. I, I have six other brothers and sisters. Wow. And um, she beat us up, um, you know, not necessarily equally, but often, and, you know, uh, we all had our turn being the, the unfavored child. And, uh, and so it was always, it's never about sitting and reflecting. It's always about the future. So the past was always ugly in my head. So like, I don't even remember so much of the past. What I remember, what I think about is the future and how I can keep growing and changing and evolving. So everything, if bad things happen, what do I need to learn from it? If, uh, uh, how do I need to grow from it? What is the life lesson here? And how can I use that to help my students, uh, whether they're actors, writers, or directors, be able to explore their uh, their issues through my personal, you know, uh, journey, so that they can, within the, the the environment of making a movie or doing a play, um, be able to, to grow and evolve and change as well. So bad things are meant to be uh, objects and and ways to grow from, fuel to grow from, and so you say about reflecting. I think. I, I don't have time for that. That's past. Yeah. That's done. And if I think about the past, this is a little girl's point of view, all I can think about is a lot of damage and hurt and I couldn't change anything and I had no power over anything because I was a little kid at, at the disposal of, of someone who didn't wasn't in their right mind and a, and a father who just wasn't there to do anything about it. So it's always about future. Raise, you know, set a bar, meet the bar, raise the bar. Now meet the bar, raise the bar again so to me it's always about like a constant growth constant change exploration the adventure of knowledge because there's a great adventure in knowledge and people just have people are afraid to read books it's like i don't I, it's like, i've had people say like i've never read a book in my life and i said i don't know why that's like something that it's you're like a proud market of pride, yeah. <laughs> know, but it's like that's weird but uh but but the point is i mean you wouldn't be doing what you're doing because the podcasts are for those people who don't like to read the people who like not necessarily have the time to read because in their car they can listen um and it's, it's less um, invasive in your It's a more your passive day-to-day. way of consuming information. But it's also not, it's not even passive. It's like, it's just something in the day-to-day when you have the, the very little time, you can actually listen. You can't read in a car and drive, mm. but you could listen. Um, so it's, it's a more available way to learn from and whatever, you know, podcast you choose to, to, uh, to listen to. But to me, I, I, in terms of time to reflect, is a waste of time. Sure. Okay, the only time that like I really spend time reflecting, it's about taking, how did that bad thing, that traumatic thing, the dramatic thing, the thing, how was I responsible? How I was not responsible? How I can take like my culpability in it, and, but also know that I wasn't only at fault to, that that is a whole nother sticky wicket about things mm. is uh is that people taking too much responsibility and then beating themselves up and being self-destructive oh, yeah. i've definitely done that before 
we all have. Yeah. And so, so I think about my my culpability, but also how other people have affected that and their own neuroses and issues and childhood things that they've gone through. I've become the symbol to to hurt, not because I did anything, but because. I re represent something. So there's all that afoot. So that's reflection. That takes mm -hmm. time to think about how is that the case. And then, again, how do I use this information to grow with? I so would, you don't repeat the same patterns or the same habits. Or you do, but you're doing it deliberately if you do. Well, it's not about repeating. It's about learning from it. Right. Because I don't, I don't really think about repetition. I think about. Well, I don't mean. I don't mean that you're necessarily repeating. But if you're, if you're constantly finding yourself, and I'm, I guess I'm talking on a psychological level, not an artistic level. No, but, but if, is, I'm talking both. I'm talking about putting the two pieces well, yeah, together. Well, yeah. I suppose that's the kind of. Because uh, I'm talking about like not being a better, more healthy individual because the art in the arts the more fucked up you are the more you're <laughs> more actually, juice you got well the more juice you got the yeah. more riches you have the more density of spirit you have to bring to the party the more insecure and the fears that you understand and and the the dramas that you've lived through how to use that to actually fuel your journey to overcome and win as the character and therefore as yourself because you personalize yep. and therefore as for the audience to grow with and understand that if that character can um, use the worst of circumstances and the worst of issues to actually uh, explore overcoming and winning with then maybe so could they so it gives them hope yeah. so to me it's like I'm bonding the two pieces together of, of, of how I even created this technique the Chubbuck technique in the first place which was uh, about survival it's like I could take the same information and self-destruct with or I could take the same information and use that as actual fuel it's a very powerful fuel to be able to take you know bad things or people would consider bad things and see them as gold and uh, that's what a, a, an artist does an artist that's their colors that's and there's there's an infinite amount of colors and real and, and really understanding the the, the, the the science of behavior and I think that like you say when you I think it's about having those layers of self-awareness so that you know what the, the tools that you have at your disposal are so that you know yourself uh, as a human being better than anyone else so that when you come to having a script or a piece of art or a film it's always always um, every time I work on anything i go to i do workshops all over the world each person even though they're doing maybe doing the same material i've done a bunch of times before i'm learning i always have revelations so revelations about myself revelations of this is why i did what i did or this is why this person that i love very much is it went out to hurt me they weren't trying to hurt me they were acting out or and whatever the thing is it's like the idea is it's like it's a constant growth process so that when i've had people ask me said would, would i be not as good an actor if i go to therapy and i said no therapy is great because it helps you define what it is that's that is your issues where they came from so the more you understand that the more detail um, you can bring to your um, to your roles or to your writing or to your directing. Um, I just was talking to a very important director. You know, I, I'm not going to say who it is because I like to keep that yeah. therapeutic relationship, <laughs> but just say he's very famous. And, and he, and he, what he was talking about was uh, what we were talking about together, which was how, why he needs to direct the script that he also wrote. Why what what is it that you need to solve by writing and directing this particular um, uh, uh, script? And so we just through this thing that I do called the emotional diary, which is a, a tool that gets right to your subconscious. Um, it's like a stream of consciousness, right? Kinda. Uh, it's, it's it's so that's a longer conversation yeah. and 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 one you need visuals for. So, yeah. <laughs> but it's in the book. It's described in my in book. In the power of the in the power actor. of the actor. So there's actually how to do it and what it means. But it's a it's it's a, literally something that takes three to five minutes to do and gets directly into information in your subconscious that your conscious mind would never have allowed you to have. And that's where your riches are, because that's the truth of how you really feel. Because your conscious mind 
is there to protect you from hurting all the time and being in severe pain. So it, it changes the truth of it and negates it, it, it um, forgets it. It, um, it, it changes how you, I feelings about it, thinking that you're over something when you're really not, or when you think you're um, not over something and you really are. I mean, like the, the, the truths of, 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 of what really goes on. And so I made him do that exercise and he was like the enlightenment of like wow as i knew it was a soul he knew it was a, his soul project this is a special project and but he didn't realize how why it was and that's that's gonna and then we talked about how that's going to find its way in his directing the performances of the actors um that uh he is going to put what he needs to to um, push the trigger in them their personal things that help him be able to solve his issues and so it becomes we're all doing this as an ensemble reality and ultimately the audience gets involved when they see it um so it's it's i call it empowerment through the arts it's like what we want to do is like solve things in our in the arts yeah. not sit in our shit and uh and too many actors think good acting is crying or emoting and and feeling their pain and i always say like in the same way that when you're around somebody that uh, is always in truth are feeling their pain and they're talking about how they're a victim and how this bad thing is happening to them and they're always truthfully and honestly in pain all the time it's like those are people we want to stay away from these are people that are annoying to us even in people that we love so much in our lives we just don't like being around them because when these are people that we don't like to be around for free we're certainly not going to pay money to see them you know, or to, or to hire them because yeah. to be around that. So we want to see people who take the small amount, the, the, the dynamic people of the world are the ones that take same information. But instead of self-destructing, what they do is they construct with it. There's a book called Think and Grow Rich. Basically, it's a thin book, but basically the main thing, and you don't have to get the book because it's honestly, this is the concept <laughs> of it. Um, and this is what I, I, I espouse is like, he said, but basically 95% of the population of the world take bad things that happen to them, naysayers, the people that say you can't do it, you're not pretty enough, smart enough, um, you don't have social hierarchy enough, educated enough, whatever. The thing is, and they take that as um, their reasons to be defeated and then don't go after anything. They just, they, they, they not only sit in their shit, they just make safe choices because they don't want to deal with the idea of the possibility that all these people are right. 5% of the world's population are people who take that same information when they get the naysayers and the, and the, and the traumas and the insecurities and the fears and the things that generally happen to everybody, uh, is uh, that they take that information and they say, not only am I going to win in spite of you, but because of you. Because of you. So I'm going to use that. It's like, oh, yeah, well, you know, I screw you see watch me fly watch me soar yeah. and, and 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 so what happens is that that's five percent those are the those are the leaders of the world anybody who accomplishes great things always are those people see everybody always has impasses everybody has hurdles there's no such thing as a life without them whether it's your social life or your or a career uh, life there's always going to be hurdles and there's always going to be obstacles and sometimes they're really really um, huge and dramatic and sometimes they're little and petty but there are lots of them on different levels but it's what how you deal with that information that makes a difference between dynamic people and people that are just your day-to-day -day, I call them the norms the, the the people that just do normal they're the normal people but we don't aspire to be normal yeah. we aspire to be great um, spectacular, extraordinary, which those words are extraordinary, extraordinary. And so the thing is that it's like, that's what I always say to my, my actors, my writers, directors, I say, it's like, I, good, you're, what you did, just did was good, but I don't think good's good enough. <laughs> I want the best. I want extraordinary. And so I'm going to help you take chances and cross the boundaries that you've created for yourself and other people have created for you and say, let's push the envelope. Let's make bold choices. The worst that can happen 
is that people will say you suck. That's the worst that can happen. You're not mm. going to die, yeah. you know. <laughs> but if you've taken the chance. It could also be get, get, give you awards, give you a great career, give you great respect, and and be in a position that that people really are looking at you as someone that God. I wish I could be that person. And how wonderful that is to be a role model to, to humanity. Yeah, I could imagine when you're putting the power of the actor together, and as you're kind of starting to. Uh, go on your own sort of journey of self-awareness and self-discovery to kind of find and create these tools um, for for actors and people that you are working with that that could have been a very vulnerable position that you put yourself in because you're having to use yourself almost as a the guinea pig for all of this new sort of stuff. Well, I don't see it as a guinea pig because I, I love talking about my stuff because right. I say, like, I had this and this is what I did with it. Yeah. So I take pride in what, what other people take as a as a point of shame or a point of something they don't want to hide. I take it as, like, I people always tell me how courageous I am to tell the things I say all over the world to virtual strangers that, that are in my classes and stuff. Uh, that become people that are become very close to me because we, I open up. That gives them permission to open up. I tell them, it's like this is my, this is how I got to where I am is by looking at this stuff as as my, um, is is the hurdles. Like the higher the hurdle is, and you jump over that hurdle, that's an accomplishment. Mm. So so the thing is that hurdle, the drama or the insecurities are the things that I I tell everybody about um, the things that I've been involved with like you know the, the drugs I was involved with and the uh, uh, per, uh, promiscuity um, and you know that kind of stuff back in the day um, it was like really I, I got to the point it was so self-destructive that I a couple times almost died you know and uh, is this before or after you moved to LA or both both right. <laughs> <laughs> I was on a track you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I but that's what I knew I had that's what the whole system came in was like I can't keep doing this to myself. I got to find a way to change the way I see the same information. So life is all about a, a choice of two paths. One path is the path of least resistance, which is the path of just giving up. It's just, it takes, it's so easy to give up. And so it's just like, do, 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 do. that's a path of least resistance, the give up path. But there's no accomplishment in that. There's no satisfaction in that. There's no sense of pride in that. Then there's a, the path of, most resistance where you have like it's raining and you know uh, and, and there's sleet and there's spiders and snakes and brambles hitting you in the face as you're walking through the uh, <laughs> through the, this path but yeah. um but if you get through it you there's such satisfaction it's like no matter what gets presented to you it's like god damn it i'm bound to determine to like make that be something that gives me a purpose to overcome and win with. And I, I use the word win a lot because there's a human equation of like win-lose that we find ourselves in adrenaline happens in us when we need to win. So I put the win-lose aspect in the acting, which makes it really quite different than other people's techniques because I want people to want to win their objective um, so that not only are they creating an adrenaline in themselves, but an audience becomes an, a sporting, like a sporting you know section where they're watching and they're picking sides and they're they're going you know they're, they're supporting like their favorite their favorite player um and and the moves that the player is making in the same way so it becomes an exciting thing to watch um uh, performance or directing or, or the writing of it whatever aspect of it is it's like to watch people with that the primal need to win which does literally affect create adrenaline which is uh, organic speed and most people will agree that speed feels good mm. now it's bad for you when you take it <laughs> and other than organic places yeah. like cocaine or uh, uh, crystal meth and that kind of stuff but people love it when they're taking that stuff but it's so destructive because it really messes with your biology whereas a natural adrenaline is actually very healthy your, keeps your heart pumping it's good for your psyche it's good for your body and uh and it creates an, an excitement of life a joy de vivre you know and uh and so what we're doing is creating um that reality that allows 
your audience and you because remember the, the, the actor or the director who's um, directing something even when they're writing the person who's writing it's like you have that that win-lose kind of aspect to it makes things go faster and creates that um, excitement mm, it certainly can give it that kind of life and death sort of feel like you know well, like life or depression. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm thinking two different things, but the thing is, like, I got full of life, or I'm kind of depressed. Yeah, you know, and and just feeling your feelings, which is really nice. Some actors think that if I can, if they can cry on cue, that makes them a good actor, but that's just not the case. And if you look at the people that have are famous and people who are winning the awards, um, it's rare when we see them crying. It's it's usually when they're really really trying to win something so I really at the end, I will win no matter what the means justify the end um, I'm going for it whatever the emotional or physical or both need is um, of, of that particular movie or, or, or play or, or TV show it's like watching that journey is uh, it, it creates like um, our, 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 our as an audience makes us want to do more as opposed to sit at home and um, just be uh, depressed. Mm. Yeah, I'd love to step back for just a second into mm. you know talking about Detroit again, um, mm-hmm. and what your childhood was like in in a in a kind of creative sense. I know you said that your mum was quite abusive, um, but your dad was he was an attorney, wasn't he? A, yeah, and a very, and very and a scholar, and he also taught wow. graduate law at university and. He was um, an amazing man who did a lot of free cases for civil rights and for poor people. And it's just that he wasn't, he was there for everybody else. He just wasn't there for us. Right. And so it was like a little kid who just didn't have like, God, he's such a good man and everybody loves him so much and he gives away free time and, and this way our family never had any money because he was giving away so much of of his free time is that, um, is that you feel like, God, if we're not important enough to take care of, and you are capable of taking care of people in a very profound way, then maybe we're not worth it. So it becomes, I say we, I have a retarded brother who was, I mean, at my father's funeral, my mother beat him up, you know, so it's, and he's now going through a lot of severe mental issues off of the severity of her abuse. And, uh, and, I, and I feel there's a lot of guilt I have about the fact that I, because I was in my own protection mode that I wasn't there to take care of him and protect him from such a horrible abuse. And also because we were the only Jews in all Catholic neighborhood, uh, I didn't have any friends. And I, and I didn't think I was worth being friends with because of my home environment. So I never kind of tried to create, like, you could like me anyway, because if you started off not liking me because of my religion, then maybe... And then because I didn't have the um, confidence from home, I just let that be, and I and I was I was all alone. So what I would do was write stories. I couldn't talk to people. I literally had to do a countdown to, to actually say hello. Mm. I'd, I'd go ten, nine, eight, seven. I'd actually do a countdown to be able to say hello to anybody because I was so terrified that they would just think, "Oh, you're so stupid." Because I grew up with my mother saying, "You're ugly and stupid, ugly and stupid, you're ugly and stupid." So anyway. And, 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 and all a bunch of other stuff. Um, but so even saying hello is to me the possibility of being, um, you know, reviled and, and put down. And, uh, and so what I'd write is funny stories. And I'd hand them out to people. And people say, oh, you're really funny, you know. And so um, I, that's what I would do is I, I couldn't talk, but I could write. I would also do paintings, mostly with charcoal, because I I thought everything was shades of gray because of my childhood. So apparently in my elementary school, they saw some of my, you do paintings there, you know, and uh, and I had charcoals and stuff like that at home, and that's what I would do, because I didn't have any friends, and I do a lot of artwork and writing. So one of the teachers, I think in uh, first grade, I was like six or seven, something like that, saw something that I had drawn and she sent it to the Detroit Institute of Arts and there was a class for genius prodigies and they put me in that from that. But I thought I sucked. Hmm. I thought my story sucked. I thought my, my artwork sucked. I just thought everything that I did was awful. And so when they when they said that, it was like, 
uh, why am I here? And I'd see everybody else's thing and say, oh, that's so much better than mine. Mine's stupid. Mine's awful. So, but, but I guess it, it, it's the it's a turnaround later on. Of, again, this is like the, 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 the process of self, you know, um, deprecation in such an extreme amount because of circumstances. That is another reason why I came up with the stuff I had to come up with and why I was so self-destructive. Um, but I'm trying to think what else in Detroit. Um, oh, I, we didn't move until all Jewish neighborhood until I was 15. And so, so I had all the childhood stuff of people like saying, you're going to go to hell, you killed Christ. And I remember saying to these kids saying, I don't even know who Christ is. How could I kill him? I don't, if I don't know him, how could I have killed him? Hmm. <laughs> so it's like the, it's like the best I had, you know, because yeah. like, I was being so like, ah, tortured for religion, tortured at home. We were the you know, crazy family in the, in the neighborhood. Uh, the, the health department was called on our, on our house so many times. Was your household, like, were you guys religious? Did you do Shabbos or like the high holidays or anything? Or was it not really... My, well, this is an interesting story. It's like there's always reasons why people can be very evil. My mother was uh, her father was a, a, a rabbi, and they were very orthodox, and uh, and the Jewish religion and the high like the Hasidic you know religion part of it and some high orthodox too. It's like women are the temptresses, and that's why you have to wear the wig when you get married so you don't tempt. And we're all black and, and sh- cover yourself, much like the Muslim religion. You know, it's the same kind of concept. And um, and so she was raped by her my my grandfather's brother, her uncle, at thirteen years old. And then when she told her, you know, my my grandparents, um, her parents, that this happened, they beat her up. They said, what did you do to tempt him to make him do this? And don't ever speak of this again. You're ashamed to the family. So, of course, she's living with this. And her first sexual experience is one that's a moment of shame. Jewish religion is creating this. And she decided that if God would accept and and sanction um, little girls to be raped, and, and supporting that reality that I don't want any part of it. And she became um, an atheist. She said, I don't believe in God at all that can let that happen. But she still took on the guilt and the shame. So, so that became why she became mentally ill. And the hoarding is about protection. Right. Hoarding is always about protection. And so she, she's... Uh, uh, so and the attack is attack before you get attacked. There's an imagined attack at you. And so it's... Uh, it makes sense that she became because there's always when you play a character who's really abusive and, and evil there's always righteous reasons for their evil behavior and you have to you have to investigate that because there's always good reasons that they're trying to solve something that uh, and, and overcome something that happened to them as children evil adults you know when I say evil in quotes because um, evil is not evil to them they are solving something they're trying to fix something they that's the only way that they can and my father was very religious so it was a very interesting thing you know because during the holidays the high ho- holidays he'd go to the synagogue but he was never asked us to do anything so we had maybe a stint a very short stint we went to to uh, Sunday school you know I learned a little Hebrew, but I mean, literally, we weren't there long enough to, to do it. And and uh, since my mother doesn't drive, and my father was always working all the time. There was nobody to take us and do any of this stuff. So he decided he was going to. He's 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 uh, in an Orthodox cemetery, which my mother does not want to be buried, and she's still alive. And she's like a cockroach, she's going to you know <laughs> outlive us all. <laughs> I'm telling you, my mother is like. She has she has highest cholesterol. She's had every disease under the sun. She's fucking ninety seven years old, wow. and it's like, just and she resilient. just keeps keeps on ticking like a Timex, you know. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, but anyway, so. So what was the path that led you to acting? Do you remember the first time that you kind of got on stage or got in front of people and and had that experience? Well, I just knew that there was no because I was so I couldn't talk to people and I couldn't communicate with people and I didn't have friends and that was a way to 
express myself and I didn't have any other way to do to be on a stage and to um, express my feelings through somebody else's words so I didn't have to even make up my own words and and so I got into a theater group when I was like 12 13 years old I'd ride my bike too I just remember one of the first performances that this group did this is like Michigan it's like not a big deal (laughs) 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 it's like like community theater look like it's you know stellar um (laughs) so the first our first gig was uh uh at a mental institution and so it was all these crazy people that was our audience and so they said whatever you do the people at the who ran the 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 institution said whatever you do do not look at the audience and of course you can't tell someone especially someone who's 13 years old it's like don't look at the audience so it's like that's what you gotta whatever someone tells you not to do that's what you gotta yeah. do and so the uh so we were we're performing we're in and it's like 20 minutes into the play and i and um i had to look and there were the strangest weirdest people i've ever seen <laughs> and i froze couldn't remember anything for a good full oh, maybe three minutes of just staring at what so, you know, like, i mean really whatever you think and imagine like the craziest people on the planet to look like that's what it looked like and especially in my head and you know when you're a little with kid everything is like that much more you don't have you don't have the the, the ability to to go through what's politically correct was not politically correct you just see things in a very pure way and uh rationalizations um thinking about their stuff and the, it's, it's a little kid stuff is, is pure taken and so i was like never seen anything like that before other than my mother <laughs> and uh that's my first experience on the stage <laughs> right wow so and i auditioned for all the school things i never booked one right not one but i was always like but i was i painted flats and i was a part of the team but i just i just i i'd be i put my number in sign up for it and when it was time for me to like actually get up there and audition i would for the most part run away but right before they called my number right (laughs) (laughs) were your parents aware of your these kind of creative pursuits that you were having or they just didn't really take much notice seven brothers and sisters i remember leaving the house i was i think i was like just left the house i was 15 and a half 16 i just left for two weeks i was like just getting up to no good i mean i was doing a lot of drugs and hanging out with a bunch of people and they were doing the same and it was the 60s for god's sakes that's what you did and <laughs> a lot of acid i was gonna say it must have been a lot of acid a lot of acid and mescaline and peyote and and and, and. it was around the time of uh richard alpert and um uh, timothy leary yeah timothy leary ken kesey yeah. those people and uh and so, and I was also part of a, a, a political group like um, SDS, you know, kind of thing. I was, we, our group was called Yip Fugs. And uh, <laughs> we were part of the Chicago, you know, riots thing. Um, and I was the youngest member of the group. They're all college age. But they thought I was really smart. So they made me part of the, 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 the upper echelon of this political group. So we would do all kinds of things that were like, very revolutionary but i was always like how do they invite me to this is like <laughs> i don't know how to do this i'm a really little girl had that fraudulent um, but, but kind I, of complex huh had that kind of fraud complex where you felt like what have i done to or am i in the right place or you know well like, like how did yeah how did i hoodwink them yeah you yeah because yeah the fr- it's and uh but they also gave me the uh, the purposes of um of, of, of education so i had to teach people about the Vietnam War and the history of it and the history of racism in our country of which I did and uh, I also used to write for um, remember this movie Almost Famous Cream Magazine yeah I was one of those people. Wow. I was one of the kids because they didn't pay. So they get to us to do it. I was a, I I wrote for a a newspaper called The Fifth Estate, which is part of the MC5 kind of, you know, stuff. Uh, If you know anything about the music world and, you know, back in the 60s, MC5 was pretty like big. Um, But all Detroit. It's a Motor City 5. Right. 
and uh, uh, and so I was always going to all the concerts and stuff and and then I was a, the photographer for cream magazine and I'd go with another girl who's my age we were both 16 17 and we'd go you know, we'd interview people like Alice Cooper and stuff like that Alice Cooper know, lived that must in, have been amazing it was pretty amazing because we we were like with backstage passes to everything, yeah. and we and we interviewed the most interesting people. I almost got raped by one of the people, um, <laughs> but it's like not so amazing. Uh, well, yeah, I, I could hold my own. You yeah. know, I, I ended up uh, being you know, uh, I think I terrified him. Hmm. I told him I was going to bite him. And he didn't believe me, and I did. So, right. <laughs> so I was like, "Don't fuck with the topic, okay?" <laughs> and uh, but uh, the issue is that I kind of made the left turn into all of a sudden I had friends that were the the politicos, the the kind of you know the the revolutionaries, and we were going to change the world, and mm-hmm. we were going to, and we were always having meetings, and there's always parties after the meetings, and, and we had, there's a lot of fun in these, and, and hanging out with a, a bunch of politicos, you know, that were all like, college, you know, they're all college people, because I don't know if you look at the history books, but the 60s were filled with that kind of stuff, and there's always rock concerts, and that these, we would go, and it's those three-day um Work, uh, that they had all over the, the, the you know, in Detroit because we had a big music community uh, in Ohio. You drive over there with the three day rock concerts, so you would just get blasted and have fun with you. So all of a sudden, I had friends. All of a sudden, I had a way to like communicate because it was going to be about politics and changing the world and, and making it a better place to live in. And so it just kind of goes hand in hand. And I ultimately, I, I use what I do for a living now to empower. Uh, the world, the humanity through the arts. So they don't, they don't know they're, don't, I'm not hitting them over the head, I'm not proselytizing. You don't have to go to a church, all you have to do is watch TV, go to the theater, and you will, you'll get the message subliminally that you have the power to follow your dreams and to accomplish whatever you want. But subliminally, in an entertaining way, which is the best way, but it began with being a part of like, and my father was also someone who was a Holocaust survivor. And, uh, so he wanted it. That's why he always gave free cases. That's why he was always doing what he was doing to give back. Because he left Germany when he was eleven, right. um, and uh, probably without his family. I would imagine family came. Yeah, first to to uh, from Germany from Heidelberg to to um, Netherlands, and Netherlands was taken over by the Nazis. So then, then they came here, and uh, they had they had all the money in the world, and then they had nothing. And they had a store in New York City, the usual, you know, Jewish people coming here. <laughs> from, from, <laughs> the usual from, shtick. From the, the usual shtick from, you know, the Holocaust, uh, yeah. you know, stuff. And and so he was bound and determined to change the world in his way. So I was feeling like the first time I was arrested, um, I was arrested for doing a sit-down strike um, during a time we had a... We had the big riots in Detroit, and there was a curfew, and so anybody was out after curfew, which we did on purpose. We, I remember I was part of this political group. So um, they can't put you in regular jail if you're 18 or over, but they can when you're younger. And I was like, whatever, I, I was 16 or 17. And so uh, my father was such a, a radical politico that when he came to pick me up at the, at the jail, he was so proud. He was like, he's like that's my girl. <laughs> That's brilliant. Isn't that brilliant? And yeah. and so that it's, that carried on. So I'm always asking my father because he's passed away for 25 years now. I talk to him in heaven or up in the sky, whatever. whatever I always seem to go up. Um, and I say, "You're proud of me. You're proud of me. You're proud mm. of me." And uh, because he was just, he was a good man. He just wasn't there to protect us. You know, that's that's the part I struggle with. But. Um, but that became the beginning of my exploring. I actually had the whole school strike the whole school because they wouldn't let girls wear um, pants. They would only let them wear um, skirts or dresses, and they had to be at a certain length. And I had the whole school strike. And I, I mean, I, I remember I was the shyest person ever. I, I could not talk to people. I had to write stories. Remember that part of the story? And and I, at, at one point, I just, uh, I, because of all the stuff that was happening, I said, you know what? You mean hate me? You may love me, but I'm not going to be not seen anymore because I, I don't want to be that invisible person that I was being for my whole life. So that 15 years old, when I got into this political group, 15, 16 is when I just started becoming this blossomed out because I said, 
I'm going to do the craziest stuff. I'm going to say the most shocking things. I am going to just like, go just do whatever. You'll either love me or you're going to hate me, but you're not going to have an in-between viewpoint of me. And that's been my point of view ever since. And it's been working really well because my lack of fear in doing that has made people actually find because courage is very sexy and I found this all of a sudden I became really popular so my, my family used to make a joke about it the phone would never ring on my behalf and all of a sudden they had to put a thing on the wall of all the phone calls that were coming in <laughs> for me you know and uh, and the prom I had all these people ask me to do the prom but since I didn't believe I was a revolutionary the proms are counter-revolutionary so we struck the prom yeah. <laughs> <laughs> i can't i went but i was on the outside striking it yeah, yeah. <laughs> so i guess getting into this political group mm-hmm. and being someone who was kind of given the responsibility of educating people was that- also rabble rousing i was a part of the striking and sure strikes and ideas to how we can do this like the merry pranksters we were a bunch of merry pranksters okay. a lot of people a lot of us were really meant to like I, I ended up coming out here doing stand-up comedy so the thing is that it was they were there were a lot of funny people in this group too so we did a lot of silly things as well yeah so it was, it's, it's just making it sound a little more erudite than it right. was well, I guess we had our moments of education <laughs> but for the most part we were in party mode <laughs> i guess my i guess i was trying to create a segue into one or being curious segue, about what that's right actually stop me from talking occasionally <laughs> occasionally i do a segue <laughs> um Segways. Well, was was this your first experience of uh, of educating people and kind of um having the kind of floor to uh shape the way that people may think or the way they well, perceive here's things a, here's the thing that because i come from seven brothers and sisters my mother was incapable just like just just that capable of doing it she wasn't lucid um my older sister who's four years older than than me where it was uh um i don't know well for whatever reason she did not take that on and i chose to take that on so i was always taking care of and caretaking so that's part of like being an educator is a care being a caretaker too so i was i was making sure that that the I, i would cook um, I would uh, take care of. I'd make sure because like the babies were never, you know, diapered and they're pooping and peeing on everything, and and so there was a lot of like I had to step up because my older sister didn't, and and there were a lot of kids to take care of, and so I think that began there because I'm into care. It's inherently and fundamentally a caretaker, so it's like you first, then I'll think about me. Because yeah. I think a good educator has to be selfless, and a lot of especially um, acting teachers, what they'll do is abuse. Um, there, you, you've been in acting class before. I don't know. Have you ever had an abusive acting teacher? Most uh, people, most yeah. people have had had someone who's taken advantage of people being open and vulnerable to them. Yeah, and, yeah. And either taking advantage of them by really messing with their head and their and their confidence. Or going as far as um, sexual seduction. There's been so many cases where sexual harassment. Well, I mean, just look at the whole Me Too movement and all the so stuff that's come of, out with that. A lot that. of acting teachers yeah. were doing it, and you know, a lot of them are dead now. But they're the stories I remember and I've heard since then, and the stories I'd heard from the from people um, that are past now are like they're horrible. And I couldn't even imagine. I was like, why, how someone could think that way? Because I just, again, again, my, even in my, my mother being so abusive, when it came to other people, because my retarded brother, what she would do, the only thing she did outside of, she didn't ever work, she didn't know how to drive a car or even write a check. But what she, what she would do is create events um, for retarded adults. And first retarded children for my brother, and then when he became an adult, and, and she calls it her corporation, love, Corporation, love incorporated, right. <laughs> and she gets on the phone and gives advice to retarded people. Don't ask. Okay, <laughs> that's a comedy show. It's yeah, right. I could imagine <laughs> it's like someone who needs to like understand the world herself. Um, but uh, it's like she, she, she's a giving person, and and so there was always that kind of sense of uh, he. My father was taking care of people. Uh, my and and self selflessly, my mother, when she was had her moments, it was always if she had a lucid moment, that's where it would go to helping people. Like maybe that's what kept my parents together. I don't know. 
and uh and so it was just it's part of my growing up so i I couldn't even think in that in that way it's like your growth is my growth but you have to you're it's like i had someone interviewing me yesterday for french tv and it was like they said um when when someone wins an oscar you know and says your name or, or how do you feel and i i said i don't really care about oscars i don't really care about the awards what i care about is the work and the pride of work so when i see the work that they've done that may be getting you know lauded i'm proud like a mama because that's the real triumph yeah it's my real triumph is the work yeah the quality of work you know not the awards i, I don't watch the oscars and that's the truth of it mm. so i don't right i call it oscar movie night because what i do is i go to because it's hollywood everybody's like doing something oscar party <laughs> going to the oscars whatever yeah. i go to any movie theater of a movie that i need to see that that uh, always is really crowded nobody's in the, so i have my own screening room of a huge movie theater That's brilliant. and i sit there and stretch out have my popcorn have a big <laughs> screening room in there for me going that's called oscar movie night and i've been doing that for years that's great what a great idea so you pack your life into a car with a few other people headed for uh, for hollywood Mm. Via is it, no, not via San, San Fran was after Hollywood. Yeah, I come from Detroit. You, to, you tucked and rolled out of the car while they kept going on to San Francisco. Much, it was almost a tuck and roll because <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even know. Like, it wasn't very long that they figured out they hated LA. Yeah, and they just saying they all they're all back in Michigan, you know. So it's like right. uh, they they lasted out in San Francisco a couple of weeks. But, yeah. Uh, also, with these same people, I hitchhiked across the country with them the year before. And we went, we were trying to find the the summer of love because the hate, hate Ashbury thing, but that was long gone. But our young heads were going like, oh, we can go to San Francisco, and that was when we were hitchhiking with flowers in your hair, with flowers in our hair. But but we went to hate Ashbury a couple. Of, we went it was nineteen seventy. Hate the, the summer of love was nineteen sixty seven. We went to hitchhike nineteen seventy, and uh, what we found there was a whole bunch of junkies. Right. <laughs> really heavy-duty junkies, um, crackheads, and the whole thing. It was a dark place. There was no people, you know, with flowers in your hair. <laughs> <laughs> it's like none of Donovan that. Donovan didn't serenade no, you no, on your way. It was a lot of bullets flying, right. you know, stuff like It wasn't anything like those wonderful people, you know, hipping around, calling themselves hippies because they were hipping around like that. <laughs> it was the hip thing to do. Well, it would have been great in 1967, but yeah. <laughs> we were just 14 at the time, so it wasn't, wasn't going to happen. Yeah. You know, but so what was the, I, I mean, I know we're looking to condense a lot of time into uh, into a soundbite, I suppose, but the the process of arriving in L.A., working as an actor, working as a writer, and then actually going, no, this isn't what I actually want to do. What I want to do is... These actors are coming to me for advice. I worked or at a supermarket notes. for a long time during all of this, by the way, just right. so you know. And and uh, I worked a lot of shitty jobs, you know. So just it didn't just come to me. But um, but let's condense that to the thought process of uh, why I decided to be a teacher, not a writer or actor. Uh, well, I found that when I was acting. Um, because writing was supporting the acting, so let's just talk about the acting as the passion. I found that when I was on set, I would look at my watch all the time and think time was going by really slow. But when I was teaching, and I had pri- initially it started off just doing helping my friends um, who were actors too, and then started charging a little bit and then created a little group that was a, a school and stuff. But I found that whenever I was teaching, whether it was privately or in a, in a, in a class environment, the time went by so fast. When did you, sorry to cut you off, but when did you actually first start teaching? Like when was... Uh, I started teaching and like officially, officially, where I had a school and stuff in 1980. And even unofficially, like when people started... Unofficially before was like, I would say like five years before. And was that just like workshopping stuff and helping friends out? Helping friends out and people would come to the house and like charge very little money and and they did work on that and sometimes we'd have groups where we where i'd work with them on scenes and stuff like that but it was like really right but i also worked at a like a, a, a shitty school it was in the valley and and uh but it was like it really was kind of a non-event but it was just basically very just, low-fi 
Yeah. And, uh, but again, I found that time went by super fast. So like a two hour session with an actor as an, as a teacher, it seemed to go by like in three minutes. Whereas, you know, uh, two hours on a set seemed like a hundred hours. And so you always know, here's the thing about a passion. If you, if you figure out what you really like to do, what's the true passion, not what's in your head, the thing that really stands out is how time finds its way. If time goes by fast, that's the thing you should be doing. If time goes by really slow, that's the thing that you shouldn't be doing or at least spending less time doing and finding the thing that makes your time go by faster. Time is an interesting thing. Time doesn't change but it does change in our perception. And our perception determines our love um, and the thing that we want to spend our life doing and wanting to spend 16, I, I work every day, 16 hours a day. Before you came, I've been working all day with people all over the world on the phone, some people who came here. And this is, I love doing what I do. So it's like, again, time goes by really fast. And when I'm not working, it goes so slow. Mm. Um, and people said, you miss acting. I said, no, 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 not at all. Uh, I, I love script doctoring, not actually writing the scripts myself. I love working with directors. So I like being the, the force behind people. It really motivates me, inspires me, and again, makes time go really fast. And, and so I think that's, a, to me, if anybody wants to learn what it is, because I think one of the biggest problems about most people, they just don't know what they want to do. So... A friend of mine, what he did was he used to be a jazz musician, but he was funny. He wasn't really finding that it was all that interesting to him. So he went back to school. And this is when he was about 30 years old when he did. went back to school and he took a bunch of different classes, one in um, high math, one on uh, in literature, one in, in, in um, science, one in uh, uh, just, just, just think about all the different classes that, you know, psychology, whatever. And he found that he really liked his high math classes. So he went into, he started looking at physics. And he really loved physics. And that was his like third semester. He, he started like narrowing it down to like math, science, a specific kind of science. And now he, he, he decided after that, just going back to school and just taking all kinds of things to determine what was the thing that he wasn't really inspiring him. And he was doing very well. He was, he was, he was playing with Dizzy Gillespie. He was doing well wow. as a jazz musician. Yeah, yeah. He went to Berkeley School of Music, which is really hard to do. So he was super talented. But he wasn't loving it. So now he's, uh, he, he, he's a very important um, uh, world-renowned nuclear physicist. Wow. One of my dearest <laughs> friends. Who's my, who's my first guy I ever dated in, in, in high school. We've been, he's my only friend that I've maintained a friendship with. And he's really funny. And he, and he keeps his music in his head by doing bar mitzvahs on the weekend. You know? <laughs> so, <Yeah>. <laughs> weddings and bar mitzvahs. You know, he can play so, the crap out of Havana Gila. <laughs> and he would make that joke too yeah. <laughs> and he probably can yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, he's, he's, he's an important friend to mine because we're both people like of the same nature mm. it's like don't it's like don't it's like on the table you go well you're a jazz musician and you're doing really well why would you just stay with that because that on the on the, on the um, paper looks like that's a glamorous job I was doing well as I was booking jobs. I was doing, I did a lot of television and like uh, I was on Laverne and Shirley and Three's Company and things, things like that. I just wasn't yeah. vibing on it, you know, and I was vibing on teaching it. And so uh, it's, uh, and he found his way. And, and again, I'm going to, you know, for me, it was about time and the watch factor. Mm. How many times I wanted to look at my watch and how many times I didn't want to look at my watch was the difference. Did you have like a foundation of technique that you'd studied or psychology that you'd studied or were you more instinctive? I studied behavioral science uh, and anthropology, cultural anthropology in school. So I find if you really want to duplicate human behavior, you have to go to the resource, the science of behavior and the... Uh, and, and, and the history of, of culture, you know, and, and, and because the, you find there's certain things that define hum, human beings, no matter what culture they come from or what era or period of time they come from. So I found some, some um, constants. There were certain constants that existed um, with 
whether you come from China or where you come from a thousand years ago, South America, it's like there are constants that were the human equation that allows me to take any period, whether it's science fiction, um, in the future, in the past, um, whatever, it's surreal, or it's, there's always a human you know, bottom line that I learned from the, the uh, studying anthropology and behavioral sciences, the science of behavior. So we know more about how, what people are feeling or going through from behavior. We see before we hear. And so when we're watching actors perform, if they just are making it all about the words, we only get a third of the of what's going on. We have to find the behavior, but we have to find it authentically, organically. And that was where the um, behavioral science classes really were helpful to me. So that's the basis of what I do. So it's not, so I did take a bunch of acting classes, but I I, I did the animal thing, the trust exercises, the you know the, People can't say the air thought quotes. bubbles, the you know the <laughs> repetition, and yeah. I did all that stuff, and I and I just found that I didn't. I'm going like, what does this have to do with this real human character on the page? That I love the the the, the, the exploring why people do the things that they do. It's so fascinating, I, and I'm I'm and <laughs> there's a stand-up comic who once said to me, "I love working with you because I work with a lot of like comedy people." Like Gary Shanley was a guy that I worked with. Oh wow, what was what was he like to work with? Well, he was wonderful. He's also my friend too. So yeah. both were doing stand-up at the same time, and I stopped doing stand-up because I wasn't that funny. <laughs> <laughs> I, was mis- I was missing a very key ingredient: right. being funny. I'm sorry. <laughs> He, however, was, but I worked with him on the Larry Sanders show almost every episode and wow. that kind of stuff. Um, but, like, it, it, it was like one of our, our, our compatriots once said, I, I like working with you because you work scientifically, it's, you know, because it makes sense. It's the human equation. He said, I don't want to be a llama with a yeast infection. <laughs> <laughs> he said, so you won't yeah. be a llama with a yeast infection with me. I guarantee it. But it's like, it's like you're not an animal. You're not. It's like, I, I don't understand any of that stuff, you know. So It's very um, esoteric, I guess. Well, I, it's, 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 yeah, you can't. You can't go from mind things or you can't go from things that you just wouldn't understand organically because we are a more uh, intelligent animal. We are an animal, but we're, we're, we're a different kind of animal. And there are certain things that we have as human beings that, that animals don't possess. Mm. You know, So it's like we have to operate from, if we want to find all the colors and the densities and the layers of, of, uh, of whether from a point of view of writing, directing, or acting, you have to understand the science of being a human being. Absolutely. I'm just uh, on the notion of time worried about, uh, or not worried, but concerned we're uh, just over an hour now. Well, Are you happy to... Let's, let's wrap it up. I'm going to wrap it up? Let's wrap it up like right. a beautiful bow. <laughs> <laughs> um, a verbal vo- blow because bow, because here's the problem that nobody can see us. No one can see, see us. Nobody can see us. We could do anything. We could be naked right now. Well, that's what I was going to say <laughs> earlier. When We're I, not, but okay, just so anybody knows, because <laughs> you're fantasizing. <laughs> That'd be a weird fantasy. It would be, it would be a weird fantasy? Well, I for someone listening. Well, maybe not. Somebody listening. Nobody, I, I you know that you know how the thing goes that people say if you want to not be afraid, you have to imagine your audience naked. Uh, yep. I think that would be more terrifying <laughs> to watch an audience <laughs> being naked. It's like, ooh, that's people the are thing that's happening naked. down there. It's like, yeah, yeah. They have a doctor look at that. You know. <laughs> <laughs> well, when we used to record with my brother uh, in in the early days, there used to be a running gag that he refused as the producer of the show to wear pants. So his people would be coming into his bedroom <laughs> to record this podcast with me and he'd just be sitting there by his computer in his did underwear. Ever, did you ever tell people that he was there without his pants or you just let that be your personal well, he, secret? He, he, did, he, he actually was wearing pants. Cat's oh, out of the bag now. he said to everybody. But he, he would say, on, on air we would say that he wasn't wearing pants. So I'd have a lot of people coming up to me and this is three years ago now so I guess I don't mind letting it out but i'd have a lot of people coming up to me saying does he really not wear pants while but he's producing the, the show of it all so we could be here naked yeah we might be maybe we are maybe it'll, we it'll are. make it very uncomfortable getting off this leather seat <laughs> no that would be sticking to it it's like i i do want to leave but the problem is that this chair wants to keep me here. yeah i'm just gonna have to take this cushion with me <laughs> so i <The> cost <laughs> On so many levels. <laughs> yeah, I bet. 
It's had, this cushion has had a lot of uh, very successful butts sit on it. Oh, yeah. Some very famous butts have been sat in that chair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I guess to kind of start to, uh, to wrap things up, mm-hmm. when you start getting known as the person who's created this technique and you're, you're starting to have you know, these incredibly prolific and hardworking artists and actors seeking you out, mm-hmm. how does it kind of or how does it evolve into being what it's become today where you know you've got a worldwide uh kind of audience i suppose the book's been translated into what 14 different well, languages I think more than that it's, it's coming out in portuguese and just came out in china and wow. chinese um so and it's supposed to also come out in polish too wow so uh, yeah lots, lots of good. but here, here's the thing about it you say how does it find its way and one of the kind of concepts of your show is creating your own vision and how it finds its way to actually be successful is that I don't think in terms of success. I don't, I think in terms of, I just want to be the best at what I do and then things happen. And it's not, and to me it's like, oh my, I'm here at this place where I have a big house, I have really cool cars and, 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 and I don't have to balance my checkbook anymore. But I didn't, it, it came accidentally. I just, it, it occurred to me when someone mentioned something, I was like, oh yeah, I do have that kind of success. Um, but I don't think in terms of, I think the best way to be successful is to love what you do in, in measurable amounts and just pursue it without, with fearlessly pursue it. And it will be gravy. The perk is success, and the thing is, it's almost inevitable that will happen. If you're looking to be successful and make money, you inevitably probably won't. So it has to come from the, 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 the love of what you do, work ethic, really putting yourself out there, taking risks, and making bold choices, and, and the risk-taking that you do, and things just come and they happen. Mm. Well, thank you so much, Ivana. I'm I'm uh, a little bit stunned that this is your first podcast, and first. I think that uh, someone with the but career you just you broke the mold, so I can't. I never could do another one now. That's true. So that's you just did such a good job. Well, thank you. Uh, I'm, <laughs> no, thank you. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm I'm honoured to be your first to uh, to be your first podcast. Pop my cherry. Pop the podcast cherry. Um, Pop I, the podcast cherry. It's hard to say it. Say it three times. Pop the podcast cherry. Pop the podcast. No, can't do it. I I end all of my conversations with the same question. Question is what makes you silly i think you've been watching me be silly (laughs) (laughs) through this whole thing what makes me silly um i think it's i like i like to have fun i don't i think people take life too seriously and and if you could if there's a way the darkest of circumstances to find silliness in it then do it i actually talked about this in class on thursday um i i said you got to find, I call it a dork quotient. Find your silly factor. <laughs> find the dork inside of you and bring that out. No matter how dark it is, we want to have fun. Bottom line, don't do it if you're not having fun. Don't do it if you're not going to have the audience having some kind of you know fun in your journey. Mm. And silly silly helps us like, it's like if you, if you can't see the dark if you don't have the light. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for uh, spending an hour being silly with me. <laughs> <laughs>